Hi, this is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me in the co-host seat again is one of my favorite writers, Laura McHugh. Welcome back to the show, Laura. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me back. I'm really happy to be here. Well, of course, we have you back on the occasion of a brand new book, which is always a big day around my house. What's Done in Darkness is the latest, and this is about a woman who was abducted as a teen, and then she begins to unravel what really happened during this ordeal. So I guess my first question, uh, what is Done in Darkness, Laura? It's, uh, bad things, I presume. <laughs> bad things. It's always bad things in my books, right? It's yeah. bad. Yeah, but this girl, she lives in this very stifling religious community where the girls all have to wear the long dresses and the long hair and be obedient and all of that. So she's really trying to find a way out of this and out of an arranged marriage situation. And she is abducted. So yeah, she got out of that situation, but into something even worse. So <laughs> exactly what she was hoping for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, the, you know, the book begins like five years later and she gets pulled into someone says there's this other girl missing. It's a girl like you. I think it's connected. Can you please come back to the Ozarks and help me find this missing girl, which is like her nightmare and the last thing she wants to do. Well, it's uh, like you just said, I mean, once again, uh, this uh, book takes place in the Ozark region near where you live and, and where you grew up. Uh, so I guess I'm going to have to wait a little bit longer for your big city novel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> have one of those uh sadly yeah they're all pretty much ozarks midwestern rural settings so if you have to travel like if you go to new york city or chicago are you you know the little country mouse are you just <laughs> intimidated by everything and afraid and how do you how do you deal with life in a city <laughs> yeah i love to travel i've been to new york you know multiple times but it's so funny one of the first times i was there and i was just ordering food or something and i would say thank you you know to giving my change i'd say thank you the lady was kind of like, what are you smiling about? Why are you so happy? Why are you so polite? Something like that. It was hilarious. I'm like, this is just the way that my people are. Right? Yeah. So. yeah, one of my sisters has uh, is, is been living in North Carolina for a, a lot of years. And every time she comes out here to LA to visit, she'll, you know, would be walking the dogs or whatever. And someone will walk by and she'll go, hi, how are you? And I'm like, yeah. no, we don't do that here. <laughs> Eyes down. <laughs> right. Well, I have uh, absolutely loved watching your career follow what is the proper trajectory, which is to say it, you keep going up. What's Done in Darkness is now a Best Beach Reads pick from Oprah. I mean, come on, that's got to be cool. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I love Oprah. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> listen to Oprah. <laughs> Go get that book. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's any kind of endorsement like that, that uh, you, you got to think that probably is going to expose you to a whole different level of, of readers who might not uh, tap into a, a book like this, right? And anything that gets tagged sort of country noir, rural noir, you, you run the risk of it not being considered a beach read, which I guess it could, could be two different things. But I certainly think you could do a heck of a lot worse than to take a Laura McHugh book uh, on your vacation with you. Yeah. And, you know, somebody said, you know, if you're reading it at the beach, it's a beach read. You know, I don't think there it has to be a fluffy thing. It can be an escapist thing. It can be something really dark. Yeah. I would love to go to the beach right now and read just about anything. Well, hey, come on out. I, I go to the beach. I'm scheduled on Sunday, 10 o'clock. I'm going to play volleyball. Come on down. 
I am so jealous. It's a hundred something degrees here and Oof. no beach in sight. It's very sad. Oh, that's brutal. Well, so this new one makes four books uh, now for you. This is uh, this is a body of work. It, it, you, I always think it's it's a sign when you need two hands to carry your collected work. So you've <laughs> you've reached that milestone, Laura. Congratulations! Yay! Thanks. I didn't even know that was a milestone, but I'm pretty excited. Sorry it is for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, when when you uh, look back on on these four books, is, do you have a, a perspective on that kind of thing? Like, is it too early in your career to look back and sort of take stock of, uh, you know, going all the way back to the weight of blood? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, are you still just in the thick of building your career still? Yeah, I mean, I'm writing another book now, and I'm kind of in the very middle of that, trying to get that done. But it is exciting. Like you said, you know, you open up this new book, and it has that page where it has also bought your other works by whatever, Laura McHugh, and has this list of books, you know, it's not just one thing. And it's not blank. It's, you know, there's some other books on there. So that that is pretty cool. And I feel like, you know, I change and grow a little bit with each book. It doesn't necessarily get easier. We all know how that goes. But I feel like I learn a little bit more about my process and, you know, what I'm trying to say. Just to, on, a, on a personal level, uh, it sounds like you have been productive during uh, quarantine and, and lockdown. Has, uh, has the family dealt with it okay? You, I know you got kids like I do. Have they uh, been okay during the, this weird year that we've had? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, it was hard. It was hard on both of my kids. They're both, you know, been struggling in different ways a little bit. And I mean, I had to finish writing this book when the p- pandemic started, hmm. uh, when we were all glued to social media and the news and just, you know, hard to focus. We were all watching Tiger King back then, you know, it was like <laughs> such a weird time. And then of course my kids, they were home from, they were home forever. School stopped right around spring break and they yeah. did not go back and they were not doing online school. They had like a six month summer break. Oh, wow. So that was a lot like trying to work during that and them not seeing their friends. Uh, yeah, it was really hard. All right. Well, let's get to my, the first guest. What do you say? Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, well, you should be. And you're going to be a little bit jealous when you hear because uh, I've already done this interview. You're, you're off the hook with that, but uh, you're going to be sad you missed it. I interviewed S.A. Cosby who is the award-winning author of Blacktop Wasteland, which I think made every best of list that's even possible to make in in 2020. Now he's back with Razorblade Tears. Uh, I got an early look at this. I can attest this is just as solid of a book as Blacktop Wasteland. Sean is, again, at at the top of his form. Uh, And like you, Laura, I mean, Sean writes about small rural towns, and he isn't afraid of exposing the ugly side that's there. I mean, you're four books in now of sort of peeling back the layers of, of your neighbors and friends, perhaps. Are there any secrets about your area that you uh, want to keep and you would never write about? No, no, I'm going to write all of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. You got to uncover all that darkness, kind of air it out. So, oh, yeah. I'm glad I don't live on your street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should be. You should be. I have my eye on you. <laughs> All right, good, good, good. Let me just get settled in here. All right, how are you? Good, how you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm doing that. I'm hanging in there. Uh, 
super busy, all types of plates spinning, and it's either a feast or famine, you know? Nothing's going on, or you're juggling a bunch of different balls, and the floor's on fire and being shot at, so. Exactly. <laughs> I know that feeling well, Sean. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point here, because you uh, return to writer types in a very different place uh, since the first time that I spoke with you when uh, Only My Darkest Prayer was out. I must seem like a forever ago. Oh man, it's it seems like forever than it seems like just yesterday too. Things have happened so quickly that it almost seems like it's happening to somebody else. Yeah. Well, and now My Darkest Prayer has become, it, it's like Nirvana's Bleach album where there's a bunch of us that can be like, hey, I was into his, his early stuff, man. You know? That is such a, that is such a generous and uh, interesting comparison. I hadn't thought of it like, like that. Thank you. I, I'm a huge Nirvana fan. So that, I, and I remember being that kid that had Bleach so that when Nevermind came out, I was like, oh man, I was, I was into him before the corporate stuff. You know what I'm Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and I, I will point out, to, uh, since last time we talked, may, maybe a little more gray in the beard, too, there. It's, 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 it's been a wild ride this past year, huh? Well, I'll be honest with you. I started getting old man uh, stuff way early. I went bald in my 30s, and I started graying not too far after that. And I used to dye it, but after the uh. pandemic and everything, I was just like, you know, what am I doing? I, I don't care. <laughs> Although everybody seems to think it, it's distinguished. I I just think it, it's like what somebody thinks of distinguished, I see it as a, a psychological breakdown. So either way, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Razorblade Tears uh, is the follow-up book uh, to Blacktop Wasteland. Uh, and damn it, if you haven't done it again, sir, I've, I really enjoyed this book. It was so uh, up my alley to the point where it, I, I feel like I know you fairly well. And I can tell you that it made me a little mad sometimes. You do things here that I've been told in like rejection letters from agents and publishers like, oh, you can't do that kind of thing. It won't sell. And then here you are doing it. So uh, it's as as mad as it may be, I want to thank you for going there and, and putting this stuff on the page and, and making it work. Oh, man. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because with Blacktop Wasteland, I, I had an idea of what I was trying to do based on stuff that I like, the things I was interested in, um, the stories that uh, resonated with me. But with Razorblade, because of the subject matter and because of the, the characters involved, I felt very, I still feel very, um, I don't want to say apprehensive, but I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, I guess this is the best way to be honest about it, about how it's going to be received by the general public because it is so different from Blacktop. And I'm talking about things like you said that, you know, I was told the same things for years that you can't write about this or don't write about that or don't talk about this. We don't know how to market that. And so being yeah. able or being given the opportunity to talk about those things in a way I hope is compelling, it's still a risk. I, I'm still nervous. You know, I hope at the end of the day, people get it. I say this all the time, but writing is like telling yourself a joke for nine months or a year and hoping everybody else gets the punchline. So we'll see. <laughs> well, you managed to pull off what I think is one of the hardest high wire acts in crime fiction, which is to make characters rootable as they do terrible things. But you really ground these two guys, these two fathers, Ike and Buddy, in an undeniably emotional story. So I think readers 
have no choice but to connect with them because although they're out there and doing these you know things kind of maybe on the wrong side of the law they're doing it from the right place and i think that is such a hard balance that you achieve really really well in this book well thank you man i think i don't mean to sound i don't want to sound uh facetious but i think you earn some currency uh for me violence which is is a big part of the book I always feel like violence has to be earned. And I think you earn that currency yeah. that, that you could spend if you create a situation where even the most laid back, the most pacifistic person can identify with where you're coming from. And I think if you told someone, hey, um, there's these guys and they killed your child and they blew his head off and you have an opportunity to get um, some visceral physical revenge on them. You know, I think even William Penn would be like, I, I can get behind that. You know, it's like, yeah. I may not go with you, but I understand where you're coming from. And so, but it was very important to me, again, that do violence be real, but not gratuitous. I try my best to do that. But again, I think it comes from the story The the, you know, and for anybody who's listening, a, a quick elevator pitch, basically the story of Razorblade Tears is these two fathers, Ike and Buddy Lee, one black, one white, both ex-cons, their sons are married. And in the beginning of the book, their sons are murdered in what appears to be a hate crime. And so these two fathers decide to seek revenge and justice for their children, but also redemption because neither one of them accepted their sons for who they were. They, they, you know, both of these guys are, are, are very narrow minded and they learn through the course of the book that the mantra that love is love is important. And that's all that matters at, at the end of the day. Now to get there, they kill an awful lot of people, <laughs> but <laughs> Hopefully people will grow and realize that these guys, despite their shortcomings, did love their children. They want to be better fathers for them in death than they were in life. Yeah, yeah. No, and again, that's that's the thing that uh, I think works really well in here. And, and you're right. I mean, not gratuitous. Now, let's say up front, there is a wood chipper involved. So your <laughs> definition of gratuitous may vary. So who knows? <laughs> you know, it's funny. So, <laughs> I talked to a good friend of mine, uh, Terry Lynn Coop who is a writer, uh, yeah. but also uh, an educator and a lawyer. She told me something that I worked into the story. She said, you know, everybody want, everybody always wants to use a woodchipper in their crime story. And she's like, I used to be a lawyer. Woodchippers are really good for getting rid of bodies, but they're terrible for getting rid of evidence. And I thought about it and I was like, wow, if you had to use a woodchipper, you'd probably have to throw it away. So I had this scene where one of our characters he uh, owns his own landscaping business and they use their wood chipper in a way that you probably can imagine. But then he laments having to throw it away because I wanted to ground it in reality. You know, the wood chipper runs around $700 and he has to throw it away. He has to take it to the dump because of what yeah. they did with it. So for me, that was a little nod to my friend, Terry, who's a, who was a great writer in herself, but also in the reality of the situation that the, the difference between Hollywood violence and real violence. All the things that you write about in this book, and, and you say that the things that are, are that interest you. I mean, have you ever been tempted to say, like, uh, you know, oh, I, I probably should set this back in the '80s, or, or you know, even further back, or is all this kind of stuff happening right here and now, right outside your door? I think, unfortunately, it's it's cyclical. It's 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 it's, it's happening right now. I mean, the, like for instance, to give you some background, I grew up in a small southern town in uh, southeastern Virginia. And men like Buddy Lee and Ike were the norm, not the exception. You know, th they were guys who, you know, didn't accept 
an, a member of the LGBTQ community, except if they could do something for them. These were guys who mm-hmm. had a very skewered, I mean, now we call it toxic masculinity. Back then, we used to call it trying to be a hard ass. You have this idea of what masculinity is supposed to be. Anything outside of those norms was anathema. Put it like this. Growing up as an African-American kid in the South, the two things that were the, the, that were the worst things you could be called that were fight-on-sight words was the N-word and any pejorative word for a member of the LGBTQ community. That's the way I was raised. That's the way the men around me were raised. And, you know, as you grow and you become an adult and you educate yourself and hopefully you learn, you realize that there's not any one definition of masculinity. There's no one definition of love. There's no one definition of who is a value member of society. You know, we get our strength from our multiplicity, from our diversity. And uh, and so, unfortunately, the stuff that I'm writing about in Raised by Tears, it's gotten better, but it's still there. You don't have to look too hard you know, in your small towns or even in your cities. I mean, it's sad, but it's also the reason I wrote the book because I want to have that conversation. I want people to have that conversation. Well, so since the success of Blacktop Wasteland, I mean, you, you've been out, you've been everywhere. I've seen you, uh, you know, appearing at conferences. You were on panels talking with Walter Mosley. I mean, you're, you're quickly elevated to the highest echelons of uh, the crime writing community. Have you been prepared for... Now having young writers come and ask you for advice and uh, and and sort of trying to look to you for inspiration is that to, were you ready for that? Do you have answers uh, on the go, or, or are you still sort of finding your place in there? Oh my God! If you're looking at me as a mentor, you need you need you need help. I think there's much better writers than <laughs> me that you could talk to. Um, I mean, the one thing I do, I love talking about writing. If you ever meet me in person. Uh, the two things I love talking about are cars and writing. I love talking about the act of writing, the art of writing. But I still love when somebody reaches out to me and they want, you know, to talk about writing and want advice. And the thing that really, really, really is cool for me is whatever rarefied position I might be in at this moment, you know, there's two things I realize. You're not always going to be hot. You're not always going to be on top. And so while I'm here, maybe, kind of, sort of, I still feel weird saying that. I do my best to promote the people that I know are writing really good books. You know, like yeah. Heather Levy and Eric Pruitt and uh, Yasmin Alcindor and Kelly Garrett and Rachel Hall. I could go on and on. And so if you follow me on Twitter, 60% of my Twitter feed is me retweeting people talking about their books because I, I love that. If I got a little bit of shine, I want to use it to help other people while I can because like I said that shine is going to dull after a while so uh, excellent all right well uh, Sean thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your very busy schedule to, to talk to me congratulations on Razor Blade Tears I know this is going to be another uh, another big hit for you because it's uh, it's another excellent excellent book and we are really looking forward to whatever comes down the road next from you and uh, you're always welcome here on Writer Types oh man thank you so much for having me I hope you know that we get to run into each other again over the next year or so as things open up again it's always a pleasure talking with you Eric and I really appreciate it Well, we find ourselves now in Pride Month once again, so it's time for a question. And my question this time, what LGBT authors should we be reading more of? And not just in Pride Month, but all the year around. And I've brought in two helpful hands to help me answer this question. 
Greg Heron, prolific author based uh, down there in New Orleans, Lambda Literary winner, so you're automatically qualified uh, to, to answer this question. And also Dharma Kelleher uh, joining us from the, the blistering dry heat in Arizona, <laughs> author of the Jinx Blue Thrillers. Welcome to you both, and thank you for helping me answer this question. Thank you so much thank for having me. Yes, thanks for having us on. All right. So my, my only uh, rule for you guys is you're not allowed to mention yourselves or your own books. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm here to do that for you. So, oh, okay. uh, if anyone is looking for uh, LGBT themed books or, uh, you know, frankly, just top quality mysteries and thrillers, these two authors, you, you could do a heck of a lot worse. Greg, you have uh, several different series. You've got the Scotty Bradley books, the Chance McCloud series, along with a lot of standalones. You've got uh, your share of erotica, which I always bring up whenever we talk. Uh, <laughs> these are great traditional <laughs> mysteries uh, that anyone would do well to, to dive into. Uh, and Dharma, if you want, if, if your reading style is more on the thriller side, the Jinx Baloo series of uh, bounty hunter thrillers, these are fantastic books uh, that just keep getting better. And uh, Greg and I, before we started recording, we're just congratulating you on your brand new hardcover. You're going full yeah. on with the, with the hardback books. <laughs> so congratulations on that. Thank so, you. Uh, all right. Uh, before we even begin, two great recommendations for people. But uh, let's hear some more names. And uh, Dharma, I want to I start with you. Give us, give us a name that you think more people should be reading. Robin Geigel. Yes. And she, she had her debut, I think it was earlier this year, with her Aaron McCabe mystery series. And she's already got a second one coming out uh, January of next year. And if you like legal thrillers, like you know, John Grisham style, exciting. We're not just talking about courtroom dramas that can be a little dry. No, these are absolutely legal thrillers, action, action, action. And she really na really nailed it with her uh, debut novel, uh, which is uh, By Way of Sorrow. And I've read By Way of Sorrow and it was fantastic. And she is, uh, along with me and Renee James, we are like the only one, only openly trans authors in crime fiction that I know of. So if you're looking, if you're into legal thrillers, absolutely that. Great choice, Robin. Uh, she was on the show, uh, and I, I can uh, heartily second that uh, that nomination. Uh, mm -hmm. Greg, who who do you have? Well, I'm actually reading Robin's book right now, and so oh. Dharma stole her right out from under me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go with J. M. Redmond. Oh yeah, Ian Redman. Mm -hmm. She writes Classic. the she writes the Mickey Knight Private Eye New Orleans set in New Orleans. She was been writing this series since 1989. Um, Mickey Knight is your classic flawed Private Eye with all kinds of problems from her past, issues from her childhood, issues with alcohol, issues with keeping a girlfriend. Oops, spoiler. <laughs> and some of the most eye-opening lesbian sex scenes I've ever read. You can read the books if you want to keep the personal story, obviously the personal story of the character. And as she develops, you should begin with the first book, which is Death by the Riverside. But my personal favorite is Intersection of Law and Desire, which is just astounding book. And she's won um, a ridiculous amount of Lambda Literary Awards. And I've won twice and been, and lost 14 times. I like to always point that out. <laughs> well, thank you for not letting your uh, personal jealousies get in the way of your recommendation, Greg. <laughs> 
I do my best. <laughs> uh, well, this uh, it, there's got to be something in the water down there in New Orleans because uh, now this is a, a, a yet another author who seems to highlight the tremendous amount of murder and deception that goes on in New Orleans. What's going on down there? Alcohol and heat. <laughs> <laughs> a deadly combination. The combination. <laughs> Uh, all right, Dharma, uh, who else do you have who's, who's on your radar that uh, we should be aware of? Cheryl Head, her Charlie Mack Motown <laughs> series. And I, I've only read a couple of them so far, but I have loved them. They just, I, I love uh, uh, Charlene, a.k.a. Charlie Mack. She's based out of Detroit, and I just love her attitude and her competence. She's got her personal struggles with coming out as far as uh, her sexual orientation and everything. But I, I love the titles, too. Yes, I mean, so bury, me, bury Me When I'm Dead, Wake Me When It's Over, Catch Me When I'm Falling. And the one that's coming out uh, later on this month is Warn Me When It's Time. That's the sixth book in the series, which I've already pre-ordered. And I love... Cheryl herself. Every time I yeah, I, oh, I hear yeah. her interviewed, she's just so full of life and happiness. I just like I just want to hang out with her, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, another friend of writer type. She I, I was lucky enough to have her as a guest co-host one time, and she was fantastic. It put put me to shame. Yeah. So yes, she's absolutely a, another... a delight. Yeah, and yes, now you've taken yet another one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, nothing wrong with two thumbs up. Cicel and Ebert did it all the time. Really. So now I'm going to go with Michael Nava. Oh, yes. My yes. next choice. Michael started writing his Henry Rios series in the 1980s with The Little Death, which I believe he re revised, rewrote, and re-released mm -hmm. recently with a right. much better title. Yeah. I actually read his most recent book, Lies with Man, for yes. a pre-publication blurb. And he's actually gotten... It's disgusting. He just gets better and better and better. Oh, yeah. He took he took a long time off. He ended the series theoretically in two thousand and one, which was very upsetting for someone who was a huge fan and looked at him as kind of like a idol and role model mm -hmm. for me when I was getting right. started. And thank God he's come back and brought the character back. But he's doing an interesting thing with Henry Rio. The series is rather than picking up fifteen or sixteen years after the previous the last book the theoretic last book in the series he's gone back in time right. to fill in some of the time between the earlier books in the series which is incredibly clever and i'm going to steal <laughs> <laughs> i've i read uh carved in bone i think it was last oh. year and oh, yes. boy that brought back so many memories mm. because prior to me coming out as a transgender woman back in the late 80s early 90s i was living as a gay man in Atlanta and so much of how he depicted the gay male scene, the, especially the bar scene uh, in San Francisco in 84 was very similar to the bar scene in Atlanta a few years later. And so I could totally relate to so much of what he brought forth. Not only is it a great mystery, but the way he brings up the past and really makes it real is just heartbreakingly real. And he also deals with issues of race yes. as well. Mm -hmm. Henry's a, Henry and Michael both are of Hispanic descent. Right. And I've really, really enjoyed the way the series developed and how 
the character often deal has to go back and deal with his past, with his mm-hmm. own troubled relationship with his sister, with, right. with the people he knew in high school, with the town where he grew up. I think that one was called The Death of Friends, which was just mm-hmm. s- staggeringly brilliant. And he writes so beautifully. Mm-hmm. His language is mm-hmm. just poetic and beautiful. He, it truly is. Well, uh, Darby, you bring up an interesting point that that I, I do want to address here because I've I feel always a little bit of trepidation, uh, you know, mm-hmm. doing a segment like this in Pride Month because it makes sense, but then I also don't want to make it seem like this is the only month that we can think about these books and the only time right. we can think about these authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is a situation where you were reading something in those books that spoke to you and that you could relate to on a very personal level, you know, about this bar scene yes. that I I won't be able to. Right. And yet that's exactly why we read is to learn about different things. It's like if I read something that takes place, you know, in in Iceland, Mm -hmm. I've never been there, but I want to learn about that. Or, you know, those great books, uh, you know, Alexander McCall Smith in South Africa and stuff like that's a whole different world. And that's why I go there. So I think do you think we'll get to a point or are we nearing a point where there is less of of an otherness to books that are specifically sort of, I guess, marketed as LGBT books just because of the protagonist. These, these are these are mysteries. These are thrillers, top line, right? Yeah, I think we we're getting there. I think we have a long way to go. Um, a lot of my readers are not transgender or otherwise queer. Um, they're just allies, and they just really love a good action thriller. Um, and that's kind of, I've struggled with how I pitch my work. I mean, I'm not bashful about saying, Hey, I'm transgender. This is my experience. But the focus of my books is the, the thriller, the crime aspect of it, you know, bounty hunter or an outlaw biker or whatever, you know, whichever series it is. I've struggled with like, do I pitch the whole trans angle when that's not really the focus? It's just, part of the main character's identity but i've i've tried to focus more on the uh crime thriller aspect of the story with the one big exception being my uh, latest book that's coming out later this week um because it deals so much with the trans issue yeah turf wars (laughs) t-e-r-f yes you you, you lay it right out there for us (laughs) great title great title I mean, Greg, I've, I, we talked about this a, a little bit before, and, and I guess the fact that we're still talking about it, I'm, I'm hoping it's not just me, you know, continuing to, to bring it up. But I mean, you know, you've got the the books that you write are traditional mysteries in, in a sense that would and should appeal to anyone. But there's is always going to be, for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, you have an African-American protagonist and then, you know, like Dharma says, sometimes it just becomes the marketing and how and how it is presented to the readers. Right. Yeah, it's people like to label things. Mm-hmm. I mean, old as I am, I can remember <laughs> when you'd go into B. Dalton or yep. <laughs> or Cox and Brentanos and there was fiction and nonfiction and that was right. it. Yeah. yeah. Everything was together. And then they s- began to realize, oh, well, if we market mist, we separate the mystery. So the mystery readers will just go here and the science fiction readers will just mm-hmm. go here. It, yeah, it made things easier. But at the same time, it's like, but then you lose discovery. And there is that one little tiny section, <laughs> gay lesbian. And studies. it was all mixed. It, yeah, it was mostly <laughs> nonfiction studies and very little fiction in there. 
I appreciate having the sec the separate sections, but mm -hmm. at the same time, I feel like my people who like good mysteries aren't going to go look for them in the queer section of the right. store. Right. Yeah. Order four copies and put yeah. two here and put two here. It's like, ooh, rocket science. Well, uh, these are some fantastic recommendations uh, from you both. I thank you so much. And uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg, I think, for a, a lot of writers that people could be doing their own research and, and hunting down if you want a great mystery, a great thriller, a great courtroom drama, whatever it is. Uh, there are some fantastic writers out there that uh, unfortunately have been uh, shelved in the past in these other sections, and it's uh, time to bring them onto the right shelf. So uh, thank you for helping me answer this question today, guys. All right. Thank Thanks you, Eric, for having, for having us. Well, Laura, here we are in uh, Pride Month, and we just heard some great uh, suggestions for LGBT authors to read, uh, and I think it's important to get some of those names out there. Uh, do you have any favorites? I do, actually. Uh, Meredith Dench, she has a series with Bold Strokes Books, and it is a lesbian FBI investigator who oh. uh, tracks serial killers. So oh, nice. that is right up my alley. And Dead Eye is the last one that I read in that series. Um, so I'm not sure how many there are. I, there's at least three, I think, books so far. Very cool. All right, that's good. Another name to add to the list. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, certainly when when I was growing up and reading, it, it was uh, not nearly as common as it is now to find gay and lesbian characters uh, on the page, let alone uh, you know behind the author. But uh, it certainly seems like that it, tides are turning, and that's changing both in adult books uh, and in a lot of the books that like my daughters are reading, the YA books. It's it's just uh, it's it's taken as a given that you're going to have some gay and lesbian characters in there, and it's all part of the tapestry. I think that's a good thing, right? Oh yeah, for sure, and definitely. Like I have kids, you know, twelve and fifteen years old, and definitely it's more prevalent, I think, in YA books, and I hope that's a sign, you know, that as they're growing up, it will continue to spread, you know, more in um, adult books, thrillers, all across genres. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, that's a perfect segue because the, my next guest is a young adult author, Maureen Johnson. Uh, she is the author of more than a dozen books in both fantasy and detective fiction. Her new one, The Box in the Woods, is the continuing story of amateur sleuth Stevie Bell after Stevie finally cracked the case in the Truly Devious trilogy. Took her three books to crack that case. That was a real head scratcher. Uh, but uh, Maureen is back in uh, Box in the Woods. This one takes place at a summer camp. Laura, do you have any uh, summer camp horror stories? Because I feel like all summer camp stories are horror stories in one way or the other. Uh, maybe it's just my experience. <laughs> no, no, I really liked summer camp. Oh, you, were, you were that kid? I went, well, I mean, I wanted to go home, but I, you know, I made friends there. There were some drownings at the camp, not while I was there. <laughs> not whoa, whoa, we went to, I was talking about like the kid who, <laughs> who beat me up for taking his, because he wanted the top bunk. You got to go, you are just all dark all the time, Laura. Jeez not my fault <laughs> <laughs> wow I didn't, I didn't drown anybody these were drowning they were accidental drownings accidental oh, yes Th thank you for clarifying i just for the record i did not think you were responsible for the drownings <laughs> just making sure <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh uh, well you just mentioned your your kids and my kids are 13 and 15 uh exactly the right age for what are classified as, as young adult books. Are, are your girls uh, avid readers? Do they have those series that they, they get obsessed with? 
Well, my youngest is really into like manga, anime type mm. series now, and I don't know a lot of those, so it's hard for me to keep up. Uh, but my older daughter, she was into, you know, the Pretty Little Liars and all of that, which mm-hmm. she originally saw it on TV and then um, realized, oh, there are books. And so like Vampire Diaries, Pretty Little Liars, those kind of shows that are a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of mystery there, a little bit of darkness there. Yeah. Yeah. My my 15 year old is like when she gets so disappointed if she picks up a book that she's excited about and it doesn't hit that sweet spot. But when she really digs in. Like I think that like the summer she read the Hunger Games trilogy, I think she read all three of those books in like three weeks. Like when when oh she's in, God. she is fully in. Wow. <laughs> yeah, my kids were a little bit reluctant reading, which is so hard as an author. And I feel like I read to them all the time. They had a thousand books, you know, when they were little. Yeah. And I don't know what happened. So whenever they want to read anything, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Let's go to the bookstore <laughs> or let's go get whatever book you think you might want to read. Yeah. Yeah. I do the same thing. Yeah. The, the reading has dropped off significantly since they got cell phones. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's an issue. Yeah. Uh, the plight of, we're, we've become those parents now, aren't we? These, you, these kids with their darn MTV. <laughs> I, but then I, I need their help. I'm like, can you show me how to do a reel on Instagram? You know, I'm asking them for help with this stuff now. hundred <laughs> percent. Excellent. Well, it's lovely to meet you, Maureen. So nice to meet you. Your books are quite funny, so I'm going to assume that you uh, are funny, and I expect hilarity to ensue over the next 15 right. minutes. Great. <laughs> uh, it's gonna No, it's going to be the funniest thing you've ever heard. Excellent. Well, Stevie Bell is back, and when we met Stevie in the Truly Devious series, uh, she was up to solving some crimes, uh, and there were three books in that little trilogy, but uh, now Box in the Woods is a standalone. Right. So what sets this apart from the Truly Devious uh, trilogy? It's a new case. So I wrote the Truly Devious trilogy with the full knowledge that you shouldn't write a mystery in a trilogy. I knew that that was misbehaving from the get. Um, but I still tried to pull it off. I felt like I was pulling off a heist. I shouldn't do this yet. I'm going to do it anyway. And this is a completely new case uh, because I like detective fiction. I have always been a detective follower from the time I was a kid. First, my first literary crush was Hastings, Hercule Poirot's second. Nobody likes Hastings. Hastings, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense at all. What, what was it? What was it about that character that drew you? To? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Looking back on it, it's another mystery. Hastings' skill is that he doesn't seem to be very bright. You had two, you had two Hardy boys staring you in the face the whole time. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I had I had no time for them, and I had very little time for Nancy Drew. Wow. Yeah. Nancy Drew was always, uh, that's always the foundational character for uh, wannabe detective writers. No, Turtle Turtle Wexler from The Westing Game. Oh, wow. She's the best of them all. Encyclopedia Brown, even though his, can you swear on this? Yeah, sure. His answers are bullshit. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Everybody knows that Encyclopedia Brown is full of shit. It's always Bugs Meanie and it's always for a dumb reason that doesn't make any sense. All right. Well, it's, I think we're starting to get a little bit of the DNA of uh, where right. Stevie came from. So I wanted to make a detective. So I built her a school. I built everything around to make. I basically made her, and then I built a school around her. 
And now she's on a completely new case. Now that she is sort of established, she's solved one case. Now she is in the world solving other cases because she got a little bit of fame from that. Right. And so that's basically how detect, you know, detectives need some sort of way to get into the world. Yeah. They are known for doing something. They have solved something else. Somebody have heard, has heard of them somewhere. And that's what happens with Stevie. Well, and then the box in the woods, uh, you have me at the title. I'm already intrigued. Uh, and, and then this one is set at a sleepover camp, which from my own personal experience is a horrifying place where nothing good ever happens. Mm. Are, are you yourself a veteran of uh, sleepaway camps? Nope. No. I went to a day camp and we had one sleepover night, which I have to admit did not go well. Uh-huh. We had our tents. We stayed over for one night and there was a very mean girl in our bunk the part of the thing they had that day was a sandcastle competition and we all worked really really hard for like three hours building our group sandcastle and then she came and walked right through it what and and i told her off and her response was to punch me in the face knock me down grab my ponytail and drag me across the field knocking down three tents by dragging me over the wow <laughs> that was my one night at, at sleeping over at camp <laughs> Young adult novels are harder for me to pin down than perhaps any other genre. My daughters mm -hmm. are now 13 and 15, and some of the stuff that they've read seems extremely dark and, and bloodier than the books that I write that I don't allow them to read. You know, my mm -hmm. daughter's you know reading The Hunger Games or whatever, and she's oh, Dad, someone got decapitated. I had to look up what that word meant. <laughs> but do you... Have any rules or, uh, that you stick to when when you're writing a book? Things that you that you will or will not do that to qualify as a young adult? Not really, honestly, no. And I think that think that the idea that young adult novels are are getting darker isn't really true. I mean, for example, things like I know what you did last summer, and did you ever read Killing Mr. Griffin? That came out in 1978. Oh, that yeah. is about a group of high school students who they straight up murder their high school teacher or English teacher and leave him in a, in a ditch somewhere, <laughs> you know, or we got our hands on things like VC Andrews or, you know, like it's right. not the only thing that qualifies something as a young adult novel is I think is generally age of the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. You have the same span of quality of writing that you do in any other area of writing. So oh, for sure. I think the only thing you're really not going to see is something like YA erotica. Like that's the only, thing, you know what I mean? Like that's the yeah, only yeah. thing that doesn't really track. Yeah. Well, so when you were interested in writing detective fiction, was it more that you wanted to write about, uh, you know, characters that are, that are this age and, and that, that was what sort of landed this in the YA category or were you specifically setting out to write? I mean, cause obviously you, you have, a lot of books, uh, you know, outside of this uh, trilogy or mm. this, uh, the Stevie Bell books, uh, and you know, you 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 picked your lane and, and you've stuck with it. But is it just that is it that age, that time, in, in your life that intrigues you, or is was no. it more of a marketing decision? <laughs> it's not even a, it's not a marketing decision. I write YA. That's sort of where I landed slightly by accident, but that is where I've lived for a long time. I landed here by accident, but I've stayed because I because I like it. Yeah. When I was first asked to try writing it, I took it up as a dare. I said, how would I ever write YA? I wasn't allowed to do anything when I was a teenager. I went to Catholic school. I wasn't even Catholic. I was basically locked in all the time. I didn't <laughs> do anything. All, my entire time was spent trying to dig a tunnel to 
get out. Just, <laughs> I was frustrated and angry at everything. It turns out that is exactly the qualities you need to write why it's perfect. Uh-huh. When you finished uh, the Truly Devious trilogy and, and, and Stevie wrapped up this case, was there any thought to, that, uh, yep, yeah, okay, that's done? Like, I want, Was it Stevie who wouldn't leave you alone and kept poking at you and saying, I need to do more, I need to do more? What, what, what inspired uh, you to keep her going on more cases? That was always the intention. I wanted okay. to make a detective and continue. That's what I always loved as a kid was... I wanted to go and visit my detective again. That was always the intention. There was no break between finishing the end of the trilogy and going, uh, it, was, it was the next morning, basically. Wow. And I'm already started on the next one. So, Excellent. So you're in, and with the determination not to write bullshit solutions like Encyclopedia Brown. I work very hard at these um, because I, I'm trying to build a tr- like I, I want the classic mystery model. I want the fair play model. I want the, you know, there's no external solution that, it, you know, I, I try to really run by those rules of if you look carefully, you can, it's a detective, it's a kind of closed loop circuit and the clues are there. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and and it works really well in 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 Box in the Woods. I mean, it's the kind of book that I always say I, I'm not smart enough to write this kind of of puzzle because if I always feel like you you have to kind of reverse engineer it. Are you one of those writers who who you're just going and maybe when you start you don't even know what the solution is or do, or do oh you, no 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 I yeah, you know other the, the way I write these mysteries is I do the why first of the crime. I start with the why and then I do the who and then I do the how and I build this little, I imagine it like a tiny, tiny clockwork. Hmm. And I work out every single part of that before I do anything else. Uh Because the way murder mysteries work is an event has occurred and then if you can imagine kind of wind spiraling off that event, the clues are little bits that sort of fly off a shoe, a piece of paper, a feather or whatever are these little wins. And the further out you get from the event, the smaller and maybe more broken the little bit is. But then I plot all of those little tiny elements. And then I have to know where everybody was, why they were where they were, you know, kind of cross purpose the, it's like a giant one. It's like one of those grid word pro, like those grid logic problems where you have to fill out like who was where. I love those things. So (laughs) I do all of that work first. I'm also intrigued uh, by your activism, Maureen. I, I've, I myself, I, I took on the uh, gun violence issue in a, in a pair of uh, anthologies that I put together a couple years ago, and you have advocated for trans and non-binary people. Do you see writing for the younger market as a way to sort of start a conversation about some of these issues, or do you try to keep the politics off the page? Oh, I keep it on the page. I'll keep it everywhere because it's just part of life. I mean, I've been doing, I've really roped my concerns in from the very start. I never really looked away from that. And like, for example, what's going on with the rights of trans folk right now is that there is a wave of uh, anti-trans ideology Hmm. and it has, it's all over, it's gotten a surprising amount of traction in the media. And that is how it has kind of gotten it um, looped in with to certain authors, you know, so it's very much entered the conversation of young adult lit. Yeah. For me, it's taken as read that you always support trans kids, but because 
it has become an issue when it should not be. I just try to say it every single day in every single way, just because they need to know that right. they've got to know that adults support them. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, I, I, I appreciate uh, you taking a stand there and, and standing up for, for, for the right thing. So, uh, well, so the same with gun violence. Thank you. I mean, there's that I believe it should be taken as read that, that we have a, we have a gun violence epidemic. Lastly, I'm just I'll I'll pick your brain uh, for a little advice. I'm I'm currently out to pitching to agents for, for my middle grade book, which is very very different from from my crime fiction. Uh, I've I've had no no luck yet. Have you found that the, the writing for a younger market is it maybe even more cutthroat than writing for the adult market? I don't know. <laughs> when I first sold my first book, it was more of a, an emergent thing. Mm. So I kind of was on the boat when it. I was like, oh, we're in deeper seas. Like it's, you know, I've always been, I've always been on the boat. <laughs> and yeah. It's a big field. There's lots of, there's so many books. I, all of publishing is tough. You know, it's not, it's not yeah. one of those. Wait a minute. Oh, this oh is, is this news to you? This is news. <laughs> oh, no. This is, this is a difficult sorry. business. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Wait, ne- I, next you're going to tell uh, me people don't read as much as they used to. Oh man. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be this person. <laughs> Well, it's because I write for YA, I have a lot of kids at, you know, I, they say, oh, I want to be a published author. I'm like, well, you know, writing and publishing, they are entirely different things. Yeah. Writing is over here and publishing is over here. And while they are, they are up against each other, they are not the same thing. And I always advise kids not to try to get published. <laughs> you know, you don't need to get yourself involved with that right now. Keep writing. Because you don't necessarily need to get into business right now. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're bringing the good advice today, Maureen. I appreciate it. Am I? That yes. is not something I hear a lot. <laughs> yes. Don't aspire to be a writer. That's if, if anyone takes anything away, Maureen Johnson says, don't be a writer. No, don't be a writer. I actively espouse people, uh, tell people not to get MFAs, but that's, that's another <laughs> Okay, Laura. Well, that's it. You're done. Off the hook. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'll come back anytime. Seriously, it's always fun to get to see you. Yeah. Well, this. Uh, hey, it, you're you're a return guest host. I think you got the gig. So maybe maybe next week I take a week off and you just. Oh God! No, no. I, I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> All right. Well, your new one, What's Done in Darkness, uh, I'm so very excited about. Uh, I'm going to be first in line when the bookstore doors open next Tuesday. Uh, and I don't know what you, what secret sauce you have that hits uh, my sweet spot, but uh, I just really, really look forward to reading anything new that comes along. So uh, I'm always excited when I see that you've got a new release coming out. Oh, thank you so much. Let me know what you think of it. All right. And uh, we have so much uh, more great stuff coming up for you on Writer Types this summer. So subscribe to the show and get it all delivered right to your inbox. You can find us on Twitter at Writer Types. You can find out more about my books at ericbeatner.com. And uh, Laura, go ahead, get back to typing away on the next one because I'm going to read uh, What's Done in Darkness fast and then uh, I'm going to be hitting you up for when's the next one coming out? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I got to get it done. I'm trying to get it done. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, then I will let you go to uh, keep keep working on that. All right. Thank you.